good poet is someone who's listening in a very different way than most people and has a desire to get something out of that silence or out of that inchoate experience into some articulate form that will not leave him or her alone. Coming up on In Contrast, poet Peter Cole. I'm Ilan Stavans, and In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Peter Cole is a MacArthur-winning poet and translator. He is the author of several books of his poetry and works of translation of Hebrew and Arabic poetry and fiction. A teacher at Yale, Cole splits his time between living in New Haven and Jerusalem. To start, here's Peter Cole reading one of his poems. On being partial. I'm partial to what's possible, he thought, not the ineffable, distant, devoid of insistence and temperament that tampers or tramples, not the impersonal, but that which hovers here between the eye of the opening and the us of your possible listening now or in the imperfect tense and tension of what in fact articulates the eternal, that abstract revelation and slippery duration to which it seems I'm given, and because of which I'm never finished with anything, as the living itself were an endless translation. Peter Cole, it's a pleasure to have you in In Contrast. Thank you. Thank you, Elon. Pleasure to be with you. I would like to start with a broad question connected with language or languages. How many languages do you speak, and what is your relationship to each and every one of them? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not one of these bird watchers that collects lots of birds. The older I get, even as I learn new languages, I feel like I speak a fewer of them. English is my mother tongue. I did learn Hebrew as a boy in school and had a, you know, a fairly high-level proficiency, but then I forgot it all by not using it and learned French in high school, like public school education. When I was 21, 22, just after college, I got it in my head that I needed to relearn Hebrew for literary reasons as a poet. And so I went to Jerusalem and really immersed myself and kind of remembered and then leapt ahead. So my Hebrew became very, very strong and I read widely. It was another 15 years before I woke up and realized as someone who was now living in Jerusalem and hearing Arabic every day that I was deaf to Arabic and very much for, for literary reasons, partly for political reasons, wanted to learn Arabic, which is a tough language. They say that the first 40 years are the hardest. And I threw myself in and did learn. So at one point, my Arabic was quite good. Now it's much more rusty. And right now, my wife and I are studying modern Greek. What is the difference between learning a language for you when you were already an adult, say when you returned to Hebrew or when you found Arabic or Greek now in an earlier stage and when, as you say, one learns it as a literary language for literary purposes? What does that mean? Yeah, well, obviously, the older you get, the harder it gets. Relearning Hebrew was almost like remembering something after some kind of uh, accident. It really did come back to me in a very strange way. Well, I say I learned it for literary reasons. I was living in Jerusalem and living in Hebrew, so it was very much a living experience, and the reading was just the motivating factor behind it. Arabic, I was already playing catch-up, and that was clear that I was never going to really catch up. And Arabic in Jerusalem is a highly politicized thing. It's actually easier in some ways to speak Arabic outside of the Israeli-Palestine situation. It's like a more neutral environments. But learning that as an adult, yeah, that was much more of an effort. 
but it made a huge difference in my experience of the place. Now learning modern Greek as a 61-year-old, you remember a little bit every day and you forget a lot more. It's harder. <laughs> it's much harder. And what is your maybe tactile or mnemonic, however you want to present the relationship with Hebrew and Arabic, how do they present to you? How do they look? How do they taste? Mm. Taste is a great way to put it. When I teach translation, when I write in English, when I translate from Hebrew or Arabic, I'm always trying out the words, the lines that come to me in my mouth, as if you're trying a food or tasting and chewing. It's not just taste, it's texture, it's everything. And very much what they say about wine, the mouthfeel mm -hmm. of these things. Hebrew, if you want to go back to the difference between Hebrew and Arabic, Arabic is an incredibly beautiful, fluid, rich language that delights in its own richness, the exercise of its options. Hebrew is a much more elemental language. Hebrew that's spoken in Israel, I think, is actually coarse by comparison to Arabic. But literary Hebrew, both biblical, medieval, and modern literary Hebrew, certainly has its beauty, but its beauty is much more in a kind of elemental. There's a certain transparency of etymology. So when you're speaking, you can see all the registers of the language historically, if that is of interest to you. It's available. It's not something you need to look up. It's just all right there. That gives a kind of historical depth and also a kind of conceptual, maybe even religious depth, a real tangibility and palpability that's immediate. Do you think, Peter, that languages have a gender, that Hebrew might be a she or a he or Arabic or English or Greek? The word language itself in Hebrew is feminine grammatically, but Hebrew feels like a very masculine language. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a beautiful give and take in Arabic. There is something maybe a little more feminine about it, but, you know, with a grain of salt. But Hebrew, partly because of just what Israeli culture has become, is a very masculine, aggressive language. And how about English? English is so many things, right? English is just this mix of so very, very many things. One of the real pleasures I take in language as a writer, regardless of what I'm writing, and even as a listener and now speaking, is very much English's ability to absorb things. So if you want to consider receptivity as a feminine thing, I love English's ability to absorb things and reconfigure them. At the same time, English's vocabulary is enormous, and its ability to produce is a kind of a dangerous <laughs> colonizing sort of thing which is, I guess, a more masculine thing. So English, I think, has that back and forth. In the world, obviously, it's an aggressive thing. But as a writer, I don't think of it that way. And has your relationship with English changed in your encounters with other languages? Absolutely, and it's changed numerous times and keeps on changing. When I first went to Jerusalem and immersed myself in Hebrew, and I really did take a vow that I was not going to speak English just because I wanted Hebrew to enter in, and I wanted to be inhabited by Hebrew. Literally, I wanted my habits to be formed. I wanted to be informed, the form of Hebrew to come inside me. It kind of knocked English askew a little bit. It was off kilter, and that estranged English for me and made it more wonderful So I was seeing English and my own English as a kind of foreign language almost. I think for a poet, that's a very valuable thing. Suddenly, things that you took for granted are no longer taken for granted. And your 
words become kind of uh, kaleidoscopic. You're looking inside them in a way you would normally do when you're conducting a normal conversation. At a certain point, I think I began to, living in Jerusalem, began maybe to lose contact with English, particularly with regards to prose, not so much with poetry. But then I kept coming back to the States to teach and do different things. When I learned Arabic, that certainly changed my relationship to Hebrew. And when I began translating the poetry of what's known popularly as the Hebrew Golden Age in Spain, 11th, 12th century especially, that's a Hebrew that is written in heavily Arabic-influenced Hebrew. And that is poetry that I fell in love with, and it definitely infected my English, and I mean that in a good way. It became a kind of influenza, an influence inside my English, and it really did rewire my ways of thinking about poetry and the kind of things I wanted my English to do. So that was a pretty profound change. I'm going to return to that passion that you have of 11th and 12th century Hebrew poets and others. But before I do that, there is a section at the very end of one of your books, Hymns and Qualms, New and Selected Poems and Translations, that is a kind of diary in which you mention at one point that every act of poetic quest, every poem is in itself a translation, that there is the act and art of translating even when you are not in the process of bringing from one language to another. How do you connect those two? Yeah. Much like the previous question, my relationship to that question has changed in really significant ways over the years. And I think when I first began to translate from one language to another, I had very strict notions of separation. I was actually maybe a little suspicious of the idea, the idea that poetry and translation are the same thing, just different ends of a spectrum. You know, it's something we find all through the history of poetry. Wallace talks about it. Shelley talks about it. Proust talks about it. Valerie, it's really all over the place. I think at the beginning I wanted to keep these things separate. My composition and then the ethics of translating someone else. But over time I've come to realize that it just is not the case. These are just kind of different moods almost, like a grammatical mood that I'm in. The process is the same in many ways. It's just that when we're translating from another language, we all can more or less agree what the original is, mm -hmm. although we have very different readings sometimes of that original, so much so that are we reading the same text is a valid question. Whereas when you're writing your own things, no one else knows what the original is, that silence or that perception or that observation or that anxiety or that sensation that you're moving, you're trying to translate into some articulate form. And you yourself might not even know. It may be an unconscious thing. But the process, I've come to recognize it as one and the same. And that moment of recognition and slower acceptance of that process and that dynamic was a kind of liberating thing for me because it established this kind of relationality, an obligation to do justice to things and to listen. So much translation is really about a very intense, sustained, developed listening before anything is ever written in another language. And without that listening, I don't think anything good can come of a translation. So it's the same when you're translating from your experience. The good poet is someone who's listening in a very different way than most people, and it has a desire to get something out of that silence or out of that inchoate experience into some articulate form that will not leave him or her alone. How does a poet listen that is different to other people? 
day-to-day life tends to be a little more instrumental. There's work to get done. There are things that have to be accomplished. There's a certain kind of gain that's on the agenda no matter what we're doing. And the poet's kind of listening against the grain of that gain. The poet is always going off into the margins and hearing something indirect that's actually completely useless in the sort of practical sense, but contains some other kind of attention that brings you more intensely both into the present and then also sees connections within that present that go beyond oneself. So, you know, all those are certainly kind of non-Protestant work ethic dynamics, and I find it increasingly as I get older, people will say something normal, just a kind of ordinary conversation, and I'll either hear a homonym that doesn't make any sense in the practical context, but it seems to me very interesting, or I'll hear two words where they said one and I split it up, and that the poet, I think, language brain is always doing things like that. I want you to develop further the idea of listening, especially because much of what you do as a translator comes from another historical period, mm. the 11th, the 12th century, or other periods subsequent to that, meaning they are from the past, and whereas, as you were describing, the poet can find herself or himself placed in a space where listening to how words are shaped, to how they come together, is vital. How do we listen to poets that have been dead for 700 years, 800 years? In what way the act of listening is in and of itself an interpretation or a reimagining of the words that were spoken long ago? Right. Well, it's a great, great question, and it's sort of the question. And I'm inclined to say, first of all, that you listen with your entire body and you listen with the various parts of your body and all the things those parts do. So you listen in the way that you would experience a piece of music. So you're registering rhythms, you're registering timbre, you're registering cadence, you're registering sound, not just rhyme in a conventional sense, but all kinds of confluences of sound. You're registering textures, you're registering feel. You mentioned the tasting languages. You're saying a poem to yourself, whether you say it out loud or not, if you're reading an old poem or any poem. Is that like having an egg noodle in your mouth or is that like biting into a piece of balsa wood? Is that all those kind of things? So there's that bodily, physical experience. Then there's the sense of what are they talking about and what does this mean and how can we know? So part of the listening experience there has to do with listening around the poem. You don't just come read the poem and you know what it says. No, no. You immerse yourself in the period. You immerse yourself in the visual arts of the period, in the musical arts, in the architectures, in the landscapes, if you can. You immerse yourself in the surrounding literature, not because you need to get a Ph.D., which I don't have, but because you're really curious and you want to be brought into the world of the poet. And that's the kind of what's called the sort of the third dimension of the translation. It's the ambient field. It's what the sounds go up into and how they're received. So you learn as much about the period as you can. You read as much of the poet's work as you can in whatever language that poet wrote in. So you have a sense of what are the proclivities of that poet? What are the tendencies? What's on this poet's mind? And you don't become one with the poet, but there's a kind of fiction or a myth of identification that I think is essential. All that's part of the listening, and all that comes into a kind of integrated, unified field that I call listening. 
And then, I suppose, there are some connections that one makes with certain past poets that are different from other past poets from that same period. I assume that in discovering the Hebrew poets of the Middle Ages, you feel a particular connection to one that is stronger or more vibrant or deeper or more mysterious than you feel to somebody else. And that also emerges from all that contextual reading, but it also emerges from the very texture of working on the translation? Absolutely. Most of our listeners will not know the particulars of the period we're talking about, but this applies structurally to all languages and all periods. And it will apply to the early 21st century and the early 22nd century when people go to translate American poets of this period. This is a poetry that is often and was often, still is often in scholarship, talked about as in the same way that we talk about Elizabethan poetry in English or certain periods in Spanish literary history, as a kind of conventional poet. Poets were writing in a similar set of conventions. And if you believed all that stuff, they would all sound exactly the same. But in my reading experience of them, they sound very, very distinctive. These are individuals. They may not be writing all specifically autobiographically, but you can feel very, very quickly what the differences are in their use of language and the feel of their poetry and what's on their minds. So learning to register those differences, those things that mark them as individual poets, and trust them and really trust them was really key for me. It took some time. And then finding a way to account for those differences in English was also something that took mm -hmm. some time. That is something that somewhat controversial. Not all scholars would recognize the possibility of hearing that difference. And yet, when you read the medieval historical records, to the extent that we have them, the poets, they knew exactly what the difference was. Mm -hmm. And if somebody crossed the line, watch out. There are a number of terrific poets that I myself have read over the years in various translations, including yours, Shlomo Ibn Gabirol and Yehuda Levi. There is a poem by Shmuel Anagid, one of the most distinguished figures of the period with a very interesting life. It's called The Market. Would you read it? I'd be happy to read it, but just to follow up on something you just said, if you don't mind, a very short poem about this question of how do you recognize individual voice by Shlomo Ibn Gabirol, Solomon Ibn Gabirol, who you just mentioned, who is a, an 11th century poet and was the disciple, the principal sort of successor to Hanagid. And he wrote a poem which I gave the title, The Altar of Song. And it's a poem that had a little caption on it in Arabic in the manuscript. And it says that this is a poem about somebody who plagiarized one of his own poems. Hmm. And it's clear that they had some kind of exchange. The poet was aware of the plagiarism, accused the person. The person responded, and now the poet's responding with a poem. And this is what he says. Your answer betrays your transgression, your words are empty, your verse is weak. You've stolen a few of my rhymes, but your spirit failed. You're meek. Try taking on wisdom's discipline instead of poetry's altar and pose. For as soon as you start your ascent, your most private parts are exposed. <laughs> so they also had a sense of humor. The Hanagid poem you asked about is called The Market, and it's about a Middle Eastern market in the 11th century. This would be Granada in the 11th century, but it could be Jerusalem in the 21st century. I crossed through a market where butchers hung oxen and sheep side by side. 
They were birds in herds of fatlings like squid, their terror loud as blood congealed over blood and slaughterers' knives opened veins. In booths alongside them the fishmongers and fish in heaps and tackle like sand, and beside them the street of the bakers, whose ovens are fired through dawn. They bake, they eat, they lead their prey. They split what's left to bring home. And my heart understood how it happened and asked, Who are you to survive? What separates you from these beasts which were born in new waking and labor and rest? If they hadn't been given by God for your meals, they'd be free. If he wanted this instant, he'd easily put you in their place. They've breath like you and hearts which scatter them over the earth. There was never a time when the living didn't die, nor the young that they bear not give birth. Pay attention to this, you pure ones, and princes so calm in your fame. Know if you'd fathom the worlds of the hidden, this is the whole of man. Gorgeous. Who are you to survive? I love that line. Tell me, Peter, what's a bad translation? Hmm. A bad translation is a product of bad listening. A bad translation is, in the case of a poet like Hanagid, who is clearly both has the reputation of being a great poet and, in my own reading of him as a Hebrew poet, feels like one of the great poets of all time. A bad translation is a translation that makes you think he was not a great poet, that he was a bad poet, or that he was a mediocre poet, or that he was a boring poet. Physically, a vital man who is pores are open to the world. In this case, he was also an extraordinary person. He was the, the Jewish prime minister of the Muslim city-state of Granada. He was the leader of the Muslim army of Granada. I mean, this was a man of the world and of action and contemplation, could bring opposites together. So a bad translation would be one that doesn't embody that. You have also done a lot of work with contemporary poets from Hebrew, from Arabic. And, of course, the relationship that a translator has with a living poet is very different from a translation done of a deceased past poet. In what sense, Peter? Well, I used to think that the dead don't fight back. <laughs> But that's not true either. <laughs> When you're sleeping or trying to sleep, they come back to haunt you. There are different pleasures. I've worked with both Hebrew and contemporary Palestinian Arabic poets, and that's been, by and large, a wonderful experience. I mean, getting to know these people and their worlds and their families. The most obvious difference is if you don't understand, you can ask them. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Sometimes people don't understand their own poems. I'm probably the same. But there's a kind of immediacy of transfer. There's not that kind of whole archaeology around the historical things. There's the pleasure of their immediate relevance. And if you're dealing with Hebrew and Palestinian poets, there's often going to be a political dimension that is powerful and where the stakes are very high and the level of risk is also very high. And I enjoy taking on that responsibility. And the two principal poets I translated from Hebrew and Arabic are Aaron Shabtai, who's I think, the most powerful poet in Israel today. I've translated some others who are terrific also, but he's the one who's sort of most at the heart of the culture politically. And a Palestinian poet named Taha Muhammad Ali, who died a few years ago in his 70s, he was from a Palestinian village near Nazareth that was destroyed in the 48 war, and he then 
went to Lebanon for a year as a refugee, came back and found his village destroyed and set up shop. He ran a grocery store and then a souvenir shop in Nazareth next to the Church of the Annunciation. And he's one of the more unlikely stories I've ever encountered in poetry. His entire life was spent running a souvenir trinket shop next to the Church of the Annunciation, taught himself classical Arabic, taught himself English, did not publish a book until he was in his early 50s in Arabic, and then in his 60s and 70s, partly through English translation, began to acquire a kind of international reputation. The experience of living with someone like that who comes from such a different world, let's say mid-century Sephoria, his village, is much more like 18th century America in terms of you know, there was no electricity, there was no running water. It's just, it's just a completely different oral society. And yet we became incredibly close friends and traveled all over together. That kind of pleasure I do not get from the, the medievals, alas. So. <laughs> I would love you to read a poem by Taha Muhammad Ali. I'll read a poem called Abdul Hadi Fights a Superpower. And this character, Abdul Hadi, is a, it's a fictional character who shows up in quite a bit of his poetry and some of his fiction as well. And he used to talk about him, about Abdul Hadi, as a kind of Arab everyman. He could be anywhere in the Arab world. He's a sort of a basic, simple guy. And you'll see in this poem what happens to people like that when they're sort of subject to political forces, those of us, say, a superpower. There is one word in this poem, labna, towards the end, which is a cheese, a soft cheese made from yogurt. Abdul Hadi fights a superpower. In his life, he neither wrote nor read. In his life, he didn't cut down a single tree, didn't slit the throat of a single calf. In his life, he did not speak of the New York Times behind its back, didn't raise his voice to a soul except in his saying, Come in, please, by God. You can't refuse. Nevertheless, his case is hopeless, his situation desperate, his God-given rights are a grain of salt tossed into the sea. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, about his enemies my client knows not a thing, and I can assure you, were he to encounter the entire crew of the aircraft carrier Enterprise, he'd serve them eggs, sunny side up, and labna, fresh from the back. Yeah, so he has this kind of amazing disarming way of getting at huge, huge and sort of tragic political situation. You said at one point that it's amazing that a poet might not understand her or his poem. Does a poet really come to understand the work that he or she produces fully at any point? Or is there always some degree of separation, and might the translator understand that work even better than the author? Well, I think a little bit of both. I'm sure that a poet never fully understands. I mean, the poet could gloss every word of every poem he's ever written, that's for sure, and tell you when it was written, if they can remember, and all of all, they might get that wrong too. But what is happening in those poems, what it means, that's a whole other story. I was speaking to a class at Yale, and a divinity school student asked me about a certain poem and said it just made her think of Jerusalem, and my poem has nothing to do with Jerusalem. I wrote it in Jerusalem, but it was about 
what the use of poetry is, why write poetry at all, and why should I be writing poetry? So in that sense, I suppose Jusel forces these big questions on you, but it really had nothing to do with it. But I was very happy to find that she was getting wider meaning from the poem than I ever, <laughs> you know, uh, thought was in it. As for translators, I think for sure translation is a deep reading. It's a kind of criticism also. I've both translated truly, truly first-rate world-class poets, uh, living poets, and in a few cases I've been translated by people with, I think, real genius for translation. I can tell you when I am translated like that, I'm amazed sometimes at what people are hearing, and people I translate are appreciative. You know, these are people who have spent their whole life reading and writing. They've absorbed all kinds of things. You absorb things in your body you can't identify. They become parts of your your cell tissue, your habit of thought. Somebody else comes along and makes a connection that you would never have occurred to you. I think that's all for the good, and certainly that's a key part of the process. And one of the reasons why translation is so much, while it is at some level a derivative art in the sense you need something else in order to translate, the argument, the alternative, the oppositional argument is that Translation is what keeps the art alive, right? When there is something that's worth translating, when there's something that is so powerful that it kind of flows over the bounds of its own language and someone wants to give it to somebody else in another language, that's when something's really, really alive. I'd like to ask you how contested or how difficult it is as a Jew to translate a Palestinian poet beyond the empathy and the symmetry and the love for language and the deep interest. We are products and prisoners of our circumstance. And in many ways, a foreign sensibility can bring out something that a local sensibility does not and vice versa. And yet, because of the circumstances that we are in, often that opportunity is twisted or misrepresented or simply avoided so that a Jew will not come close to a Palestinian and vice versa because of the context. Yeah. Well, when I first started studying Arabic in, in Jerusalem, I remember colleagues I was teaching at a high school to that point, and colleagues of mine in the English department would say, why are you studying such an ugly language? Which, if you know Arabic, is like, Arabic is a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous language. And I'd say, why do you say it's such an ugly language? Say, well, because you hear Palestinians, they're just always cursing and angry. And, of course, the only contact these people ever have, really, with Palestinians are on TV when something's gone wrong and the news has gotten interested. So someone's had their house destroyed or something's happened. And, of course, they're angry. And they're also being treated as second-class, third-class citizens in the culture. So... But it's an incredibly beautiful language. As a Jew, which in being Jewish is something that's very important to me, as a Jew translating certain Palestinians, I'm talking about you know, specific ones that I translate, in contemporary Israel, I translated people whose work mattered to me, whose work, as I said, I wanted to give to other people, whose work I felt needed to be better known beyond Palestinian literary circles. Or there actually can be quite insular, some of those circles, so that even beyond to a wider Arabic public, some of this stuff wasn't known. I felt a kind of ethical responsibility, and I do think while there's plenty of unethical things about Jewish life, and increasingly so in the modern state of Israel, I felt a very powerful ethical sense of responsibility, as I do to language, period, 
but first of all to this man's poetry, which begins not with his message, but with his language. Like So the poem I just read, Abdul Hadi Fights a Superpower, as much as I and probably 99.9% of listeners, including ones who are right-wing Jews, would probably agree this is a very human poem about a very human situation. What to do about it politically, they'll disagree. But my first responsibility was to the rhythms of that poem, to the textures of that poem, to get it just right, to get the tone just right, all that. It's a kind of technical thing, but it's a technical political thing. I couldn't let politics get in the way of doing justice to the language. But of course, the language, now we're back to the third dimension, is part of a larger cultural picture. And that was his indirect way of trying to get at something political, not by screaming about it from a soapbox, but by very slyly kind of coming in from below. So understanding his way of going about these things, but while paying primary attention to the art itself, is the way I could be most responsible. Yes, I was aware of both the risk as a Jew. Edward Said talks about the permission to narrate. What right do I have to now speak for this man? And in fact, there was an amazing story I had once. Taha and I were reading in Houston. And it was a pretty big reading. The other person reading with us was Elizabeth Alexander, who's gone on to become very well known. And it was a large, large crowd, very much a black crowd. And people were extremely interested in Taha. They were very, very moved by his poetry. And he was already quite ill. And after the reading, we were walking across the street to go back to our hotel. And Taha's leaning on my arm. It was like I was his son in many ways while we were traveling. And he's walking very slowly across the street. And as we're crossing the street, three young people, young adults, Palestinian, came up to us and said to me, are you an Israeli citizen? And I looked at them. We're in the middle of the street, crossing the street. And I said, why don't we cross the street? And then we can have a conversation. So we cross the street. And Taha, I can see, doesn't want to talk. He keeps walking slowly. I'm walking with him, and I said, I'm an American, but I also hold Israeli citizenship. I said, but so does he. And I point to my friend Taha. And I said, why? And they said, you steal his land, and now you're going to speak for him and translate his poetry? And I said, I don't speak for him. He's right here. Ask him. He'll speak for himself to you. And Taha was a very gentle person. Turned to them, and he lifted his hand, and he said in Arabic, he said, you idiots. He didn't steal my land. And he said, come, Peter. And it was like, I was their friend. But I'm aware of the fact that there is a certain audience who would be suspect. By and large, over the years, the opposite has happened. People have thanked me for this, for making his work available. I gave it all I had. But yeah, it's not simple. And it's never simple. And that situation changes all the time. Ideas about collaboration, which we usually think of as a good thing, of course, in political context, that's not a good thing. That's treasonable. A normalization of relations between literary partners in Arabic, cross-Palestinian, Jewish divides is increasingly difficult. And this work was the product of a slightly different time. We're coming to the end, Peter Cole, and I have one more question to ask you. Such is your devotion and commitment and immersion in these other languages and in the very art act of translation that one feels as if you are inhabiting them 
not only the language that was given to you at birth, but the languages that you have acquired. And in these transactions, I wonder if you have come at any point to the moment, maybe in a dream, you were talking about dreams, of feeling that you could write a poem not in English, but in Arabic or in Hebrew, or that you could write a poem not in contemporary English, but in Old English. I do love Middle English, not Old English per se, but Middle English. There is a way in which the kind of poetry I'm writing in English, in my mind, is a translation of Middle English, of a Middle English lyric. That music is there. When I was in my 20s, I experimented a little bit with writing in Hebrew and decided not to. One of the first poets I did translate from Hebrew to English is an American who switched to writing in Hebrew. We've talked about self-translation. This is a man who could translate himself, in theory, perfectly. In practice, he could not translate himself. And I loved his poetry. So that was my introduction to the whole business mm -hmm. was through that. The only other thing that occurs to me is that recently I've had some poems translated into Arabic. A young poet in Israel has been translating some of my poems. And that's a very, very eerie sense for me because it's a language I'm so close to and feel that my own poetry comes out of the tension between the two languages in a way. So when I'm reading those poems, maybe that's why I haven't gone back to it today. It was avoiding <laughs> that force field. I'm not going to write in those other languages, but when I'm translated like that, I feel like it's kind of being done in a very natural way, and it's a terrific feeling when it happens. It has been a joy and a revelation to have you here, just sheer pleasure of listening to words being uttered with such cadence and beauty and patience and dedication. Thank you for coming to In Contrast. Thank you, Elon. has a poem titled Writing on the Wall. It is part of his book Hymns and Qualms. It reads, We hurl ourselves over, then over again, into the wall of the invisible, or walk to where we think it is, and run our hands along it as if it was braille, to a better being, welling between all we're nearing, now as anger now as patter, now as weather, or someone's skin soon as water. Say the Aegean, glaucus above, an abyss within. It's a gorgeous meditation on the role walls play in our lives today. There have always been walls among us, as far back as the beginning of time. The Garden of Eden didn't have one, but the expulsion of Adam and Eve meant they could no longer be in, so they had to be out. That's what walls do. They separate the in from the out. Our politicians build walls in order to separate us. Or we should say that we delegate them with a responsibility. For we all have the politicians that we deserve. Peter Cole spends part of his time in America in part in Israel. Walls define both of these countries nowadays. He talks of translating from Hebrew into English and from Arabic into English. And he talks of the resentment his efforts generate. Some Arabs see him with suspicion. Some Israelis do too. Translation can be a bridge across cultures. Without it, we are trapped 
in our own condition, in our own language, in our own self. Walls are the opposite of bridges. They separate us. I love the way Cole talks of invisible walls. For the walls we build aren't always physical. We build imaginary walls all the time. In fact, physical walls often come after the invisible ones have stood for a while. It is utopian to think we can live without walls. It is also foolish to believe we can exist without bridges. Visible and invisible, the two are essential. The question, of course, is how we relate to them and if we ourselves are ready to connect or to separate. Next time on In Contrast. What I'm looking for in Horizon, is there any model other than democracy for us to pay attention to, try to illuminate so that we can save as many people as possible. I often ask people, stop trying to make common cause with your age mates. Take every bit of intelligence, every bit of imagination that you have in this moment and offer it to young people. Barry Lopez on the next In Contrast. For previous episodes, including our interviews with the 2018 Pulitzer Prize winner for poetry, Forrest Gander, and poets Matthew Zapruder and Wendy Barker, visit our website at nepr.net. Let us know what you think about In Contrast. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send an email to radio at nepr.net. You can also follow us on Facebook, where we invite you to share your comments on this program and others in our series. Our music is by the Fresh Cut Orchestra. The executive producer of In Contrast is John Vosey. I'm Ilan Stavitz. Thank you for listening. In Contrast is a production of New England Public Radio and Quixote Productions. Quixote Productions.